Well, do you remember the What Would Jesus Do fad? You know, I mean, it was maybe 10 years ago or so. The, the What Would Jesus, WWJD, it just, uh, it, it, it uh, moved through the Christian culture like a, a crazy movement. And, and there were bracelets. Uh, I don't know if you have that picture there. We had bracelets, WWJD bracelets. Everyone could wear one of those. Uh, you'll remem- remember those. And then there, there was also kinds of curriculums that were developed. There was the, what would you, Jesus do Bible study for kids? Uh, and there was a game that was made, all kinds of stuff. They even made a WWJD movie. You know, what would Jesus do? And apparently it had Bo Duke in it. And so what, what, what would Jesus do movie? Now, I mean, it was this fad. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? WWJD. But it didn't help us answer that question, what would Jesus do? I mean, many people wore the bracelets and they asked themselves those questions, but you kind of have to know how Jesus lived if you're going to know what Jesus did or what he would do. I mean, what principles do we live by? What should guide us? How do we live like Jesus? Okay, so two weeks ago before Faith in Action Sunday, we, we had really the beginning of what I call our vision month. The, really, it's the month of October and through the month of October, we'll be rolling out and talking about different aspects of our mission statement. Our vision team has worked together hand in hand with our elders to develop this clarified mission statement. What are we doing? We're bringing people together to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and give like Jesus. And what we did two weeks ago, really, is we talked about bringing people together. We talked about the first phrase in this, and we focused on this. This idea that, as a church, we're called to bring people together. We're all about relationships here. We're all about Jesus here. And, and the beauty of it is we come together, and with each other, we sharpen and strengthen and change one another. But we don't just stay here. We go out and we bring other people together into this. To live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and give like Jesus. And so... That's really a call because this world Jesus. And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is we're going to be working through the different phrases of our mission statement, bringing people together to live like Jesus, love like Jesus, and give like Jesus. And as we work through this phrase together, we'll end on October 27th, the, the culmination of, of really talking about what's our five-year plan. How in the next five years do we hope to specifically accomplish, accomplish this goal together of living, loving, and giving like Jesus about bringing people together to do that. And so really what I want to do today is focus on that simple word live. If we're bringing people together to live, love, and give like Jesus, let's focus on the word live today. What does it mean to live like Jesus? And how do we do it beyond just asking the question WWJD? Why? Why are we bringing together? And, and, and the answer really is because of Jesus. As the vision team worked through a wealth of material to kind of refine and hone down on what is our specific mission statement. One of the phrases that didn't end up making the final cut, that, but, but we liked a lot, was this idea of continuing the work of Jesus. It, it seems to us that the, God has called the church, and Jesus has called his disciples, his followers, the church, to specifically continue his work. What the kinds of things Jesus was doing are the kinds of things that we ought to be doing. The same mission. We're continuing the work of Jesus. And so the beauty of the message of the cross is that, that God Almighty in the form of, uh, uh, in the person of Jesus became a man 
so that he, he became human so that he could die in our place to pay the price for the sins that we had committed that we couldn't possibly pay for on our own. Jesus paid that price for us. But he didn't just save us to sit on the sideline. Followers of Jesus should be transformed and changed. It's part of our goal as a church is to help each other become more like Christ. And so we like this idea of continuing the work of Jesus. There are people who need Jesus. There are people who are isolated, who are far from God, who are religious but still far from God. They're all around us in our community, and Jesus is the reason we bring people together. We're making kingdom disciples. We're making followers. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. Jesus brought together followers to follow him, and then in the same way, we're to bring people together. But we have to ask the question, why are we bringing people together? We're bringing people together to look and like Jesus, to live, love, and give like Jesus. We're bringing people together to make followers. He was a rabbi. We want to make disciples. And so what does this look like? And, and we think that live, love, and give is a very simply, it's oversimplified probably, but a very simple way of answering a question, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who lives like Jesus, loves like Jesus, and gives like Jesus. Today we want to talk about what it means to live like Jesus. How do we do that? See, Jesus isn't just a lucky charm, is he? Everything we do is for him. Everything we do is because of him. So we bring people together. One of the ways we do that is by living like Jesus. We live like him. To live like he did, we, of course, we have to know how he lived. So let's turn to our text today. How did Jesus live? By the way, as, as a side note, one of the problems with WWJD, I mean, please, no more Jesus junk, bracelets, trinkets, whatever. You know, WWJD just became a marketing tool, didn't it? But the problem with WWJD is just asking the question, what would Jesus do? Well, if I ask that question, of course Jesus would do whatever I want to do, wouldn't he? I mean, if that's the only way I know how to ask that question— well, I'll just reason in my head, this seems like the best thing to do. So Jesus would have just done it just like me. We can justify anything we want to do with that question. Or we can frustrate and get frustrated and quit because we would never really do it like Jesus did. That's one of the problems of just trying to oversimplify it. Let's today dig into the text and find out how Jesus lived so that we can know how we can live like he did. And I think Philippians 2 provides us with a very nice summary of, of how Jesus lived. Now what Cami read for us is, is you need to know a little bit of back, background to the text. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Philippians, and he wrote it, it's called Philippians because he wrote it to the church at Philippi. And the church at Philippi had some interesting problems. Uh, they weren't getting along very well. <laughs> I can't imagine something like that ever happening to a church, right? The people, they were squabbling. Somebody had offended another. At one point, Paul says to two ladies in the church, he calls them out by name and he says, I urge you to get along, you know? Haven't you ever wanted to turn to two people squabbling and just say that? Get along! I mean, that's what Paul kind of does later on in the book of Philippians. But they're arguing. And what Paul says to them is, listen, here's how we're going to solve your arguments. You need to be like Jesus. You need to live like Jesus you need to consider others as more important than yourselves. If you emulate Jesus' life, his values, and his behaviors, this is how we get on the right road to solving these messes. So he ends that section where he says, 
Each of you don't consider your own personal interests in verse 4, but consider the interests of others. He says, let, let me explain this to you. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So Paul is about to tell us how Jesus lived, his philosophy of life, how Jesus did it. How did Jesus live? I want to talk about five things, and here, here's what I'm going to do today in the, in the time that we have left. I want to talk about five things that Jesus did that are represented here in, in Philippians chapter 2. And then I want to go over to a story in Luke 19 to demonstrate how Jesus lived this out. And then I want to talk about how you and I can live this out together. So first of all, in Philippians 2, we read that Jesus did things, first of all, with humility. With humility. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Okay, so you have to understand, Jesus had all the status of God. Before Jesus uh, existed in the form of a man, before that little baby was born on Christmas Day there in, in Bethlehem, in the stable, in the story we know so well, before that happened, Je Jesus didn't come into existence at that point. The pre-incarnate Christ, the Jesus before the incarnation, before Bethlehem, before the the Jesus before that existed in perfect harmony in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so what, what happened in, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul is going to tell us some important things about Jesus. He, first of all, he tells us Jesus was, before he was born as a baby, before that moment, he existed eternally in perfect community. He was in very nature God. The NIV translates that, the, the word, the Greek word morphe. You can kind of hear the word morph in it. it. It's the idea of morphe is, is uh, really, the NIV does a really nice job of translating nature, I think. The idea behind morphe is the idea of a form. He was in the form of God. And, and, and in the Old Testament, this would have been a kind of a hard concept because the Israelites understood that God was a spirit and no one could see God's essential essence, his form, and live. And that's why, if you remember back in Exodus, when Moses said, God, I want to see you. And God says, well, no one can see me and live, but what I'll do is I'll hide you behind a rock and I'll pass by and you'll get the entrails of my glory, kind of the remnants. And even that lit Moses' face aglow. Uh, and so in the Old Testament, they understood this. That was Jesus' essence, his nature. He's in very nature God. That was his form, his morphe. Jesus was the pre-incarnate Christ. He is. All the rights and privileges of God were available to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, as God himself. All the rights and privileges that were available to him as God. But what did Jesus do? Jesus chose not to use them. Isn't that really amazing? Basically what Jesus did is he took all the rights and privileges that he had as God and he was willing to set them aside. If anyone was ever not about himself, it was Jesus. I mean, Jesus demonstrates perfect humility. He could have he said, no, I'm God. I have all these rights and privileges available to me. But he set them aside. He's humble. He, he can, doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. 
That's the, sort of the essence of how Jesus lived. It starts in the incarnation, and then we see it all through his life. He lived with humility. The second thing I want you to see here is that Jesus lived in submission. I mean, when you think about it, the God of the universe doesn't have to submit to anyone, but Jesus chooses to do this. Look at verse 7. Okay, so he's in very nature God, verse 6. He, he's not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but he makes himself nothing. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature, there's that word morphe again, of a servant. So Jesus, in nature being God, took on an additional nature of humanity. He made himself nothing. He became literally a servant. He set aside his rights. He had all the rights in the universe, but he said, I am willing to submit to the Father. Now, here we get into the Trinity, and this gets complex, and it kind of blows our mind a little bit, but we have three persons, one God. And so we, we had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each have, uh, each have uh, our, their own person, but they're all one God. And so we have Jesus saying, hey, I'm existing in perfect harmony with the Father, God the Father. God the Son existed in perfect harmony with, but he said, I willingly set aside my rights and privileges and I will submit to the Father. What does this mean? It doesn't mean he lost his not God nature. And say, oh, I'll, I'll give up my God nature and become, no, that's not what happened. Jesus was perfectly God. Rather, what Jesus took on an additional nature. And this is how humility and submission work hand in hand. Jesus said, I choose to submit to the Father. He had the humility to become one of his created beings. Doesn't this blow your mind? The God of the universe, Jesus, became one of the people he created. Think of how this must have been. The universe at your command. And now you're in a mother's womb for nine months. Wow. Wow. He was willing to do that. He, Jesus was willing to walk for 33 years of his life with some really difficult people. The ones he'd created that had sinned. As a human, Jesus utterly submitted himself to the Father, and you see it everywhere in his life. And that resulted in really the next point I want to talk about from Philippians 2 is, is obedience. Humility, submission, obedience. Jesus, being God, willingly submitted to the Father. Look at verse 8. So he's in very nature God. He takes on the nature of a servant, becoming made in human likeness. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Obedient. He gets obedience. Jesus does what the Father tells him. There's no argument. How hard would this have been? But Jesus does it. Do you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The night before Jesus was was crucified. He prayed and, and, and he says, Father, not my will, but your will. I will do what you want me to. Jesus got obedience. He got it. He obeyed to the point of death. He was obedient. But he wasn't just obedient. He was sacrificially obedient. And that takes us to the fourth thing that I want to show you here in Philippians 2 quickly is that Jesus was humble, he submitted, he was obedient, but lastly, he did it sacrificially. He did it with sacrifice. There was a cost to what he did. It wasn't just, 
oops, Jesus died. I mean, so many times we talk about it like that. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus died for my sin. Oh, you know, I used to think about this when I was younger. I used to think, well, yeah, he died, but he was God. It probably didn't hurt him that bad. Uh, Jesus suffered. There was a cost to his obedience. The cross was the worst death. The way Jesus lived cost him everything. Some people choose the cost. Uh, Vince Young, court, former NFL quarterback, uh, apparently spent everything he made. He lived extravagantly. He threw away his money. I read articles about him, and he would, after every game, take the entire team out for this massive dinner, and he'd drop like, I don't know, like $200,000 on a dinner. And he was just, it was just Vince Young. And, and I mean, and he would do this kind of stuff and he, all of a sudden all his money was gone. So there was a, a, a player strike or a lockout for a while, a shortened season. So he took a $1.7 million loan just to float his lifestyle so that when he fell out of the league, he had no money left and a $1.7 million debt. He chose a life that was great and costly and it was foolish. It was just wasteful. Jesus, because of his obedience, chose a life that was very costly, but not wasteful. Obedience cost him everything. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It was costly. And friends, when you look at Jesus, when we think about Jesus, we must remember the essence of the gospel message, that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That, that when we stand before God and we recognize, God, I could never be good enough for you. Jesus paid a penalty for us in our place that we could not pay for ourselves. It's beautiful because Jesus chose humility, submission, obedience, and sacrifice. There's a fifth thing that he chose from this passage. It really happened to him because of the first four things. Because of the first four things, what we see is reward. Look at verse 9 to 11. This is so cool. So the first half of this hymn that Paul is probably quoting, it's probably a hymn, and that was sung in the early church, and he's reminding them. Um, verse 9. So, okay, he's in very nature God. He sets aside his rights and privileges. He takes on the nature of a human, of a servant. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What happens? Reward. God exalts him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was humble, submissive, obedient, and sacrificial. And there was great reward there. He was exalted as king, and he is. There's a phrase here that I never thought about before this message. And, and not, not in this way. As I was reading this text for the, I mean, I've read this text hundreds and hundreds of times. And, and as I've looked over this, there was something that stood out for me that I, I really never, it never jumped out to me before like it did this time. Every knee. Every knee. I, I like how it's, the imagery there is of a, a lot of knees bowing. But in that, there's individual knees. Every knee represents a life changed, saved by Jesus. And part of the reward is seeing those changed lives, those saved 
souls. Those people lost in sin. Saved by the grace of Christ. Every kingdom worker empowered matters to Jesus. The transformed life is of great reward and Jesus impacts many lives. And that's an understatement. We bring people together by living like Jesus. This is how Jesus lived and we bring people together. Now I want to show you from here what this looks like in Jesus' life, briefly. I could go to just about any text in the New Testament and do this in the Gospels. We could look about any Gospel text and see how Jesus demonstrated humility, submission, obedience, sacrifice, and then and talk about the reward of that. We could do about anyone, but I want to go to Luke chapter 19. I think this, this particular account of Jesus' life is really interesting. And so if you're in Philippians, flip backward a few pages to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19, we see a really interesting thing. And we're going to see how humility, how humility, submission, obedience, sacrifice, and reward worked out in Jesus' life. And we're going to look at the story of Zacchaeus. Now, many people, if you've ever been to Sunday school, know about Zacchaeus. You know he was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he, and he climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. You know this story, right? You know the song, and, and some of you, if you're from the time you were young, can remember that. Okay, but what I want you to see here is how Jesus lived out humility, sacrifice, humility, submission, obedience, sacrifice, and reward, just from this simple story. So, you have to understand that Jesus went to the town of Jericho. In Luke 19.1, we see that. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. There's some things you need to know about the town of Jericho. We know Jericho most famously because Jericho was the city that that hundreds of years before Joshua had conquered. You remember Joshua and walking around the walls of the city and the walls coming down. They utterly destroyed the city. It was the first stop as they conquered the land of Canaan. And and it's very interesting that in Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, Joshua offered up this curse on the city. Joshua cursed it. He basically said, if anyone ever tries to rebuild the walls of the city, it will happen at great cost to them. Don't do it. it. Jericho became a cursed city. And so it lay abandoned for hundreds of years. But hundreds of years after Joshua, a king named Ahab decided to rebuild Jericho. And uh, there, there's reasons for this. Jericho was in a very fertile plain. It had a spring that, that was a, a um, provided great water supply for that area, and Jericho was a great place to build a city. And so uh, they walked in, and, and uh, hundreds of years after, after Joshua conquered Jericho, this king named Ahab decided to rebuild it. Ahab was evil king. He was awful king. He's the king which you measure bad kings by in the Old Testament. And Ahab decides he's going to rebuild the wall. So he does, and Joshua's curse comes true. It costs him his old, Ahab's oldest son and his youngest son. And so we have a cursed city. You know, maybe it's, Jesus would have clearly known that Jer- Jericho was cursed. What's fascinating is Jesus probably should have stayed away. I mean, Go into a curse. You probably should just stay away from that place. Jesus goes there anyway. Interesting. Now, by the time we get to Jesus, some things that happened in Jericho. Ahab had rebuilt the walls. Um, because of the, the fertile area that Jericho was in, Jericho had kind of become a thriving suburb of Jerusalem. This was kind of your, so 
lack of a better term, your, your rich white suburban place. I mean, this is where all the wealth was. And it's, it's so fascinating. A cursed place would get this. But because of that, and so people were moving there. There was a lot of building going on. And every, there was a lot of money moving around. Every time a transaction would place, take place in Jericho, guess what would happen? We'd have sales tax. And so you have to understand Zacchaeus, the scripture tells us, was not just a tax collector. He was the chief tax collector. There was a lot of money changing hands and Zacchaeus was getting a part of all of it. Zacchaeus was incredibly wealthy. And wealth can be a lonely place. Extreme wealth can be a very lonely place. People become your friend for what they can get. People despise you for what you have and they don't. Extreme wealth can be a very lonely place. And I think Zacchaeus was there. He was actually hated by the Jews. They called him a sinner with that scorn. They called him a sinner. They hated him because Zacchaeus, by default, worked for the Romans, who they hated anyway. He was the chief tax collector. He was seen as a yes man to the Romans, and he was hated. But what I love about Jesus is this doesn't stop him. His reputation is on the line here, but he cares more about people than his reputation. Jesus was humble. He was humble. Now, you know the story. Zacchaeus was short, and he really wanted to see Jesus. And so he climbs up in this tree, and he's looking out for Jesus. And sort of you can imagine this throng of people following Jesus, walking, just a massive crowd, like a parade you've never seen. And a follower is by the tree. And Jesus stops, and he looks up at Zacchaeus, and he speaks directly to him. Why does Jesus do this? Well, first of all, Jesus had humility. He was willing to talk to people that others weren't. But he was submitting to the Father. Jesus was very in tune with the will of the Father. In John 5, 19, Jesus said, The Son only does what he sees the Father doing. He was in step with the Father. He knew, that, he knew the voice of the Father. He knew God's word. He knew the heart of the Father. And that's how he could submit. He was immersed in the Bible. He knew that God loves people that other people don't. He, was submitted, submit, he submitted to the Father. Jesus was obedient. Verse 5. I'm going to quickly move through this story here. When Jesus reached his body, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. <laughs> So he came down, Zacchaeus came down. Nothing like a formal uh, invitation, <laughs> you know. I might invite myself over to some of your house today. He'd be like, what? I'm not ready for that. Zacchaeus was excited. You see, Jesus was obedient because he was walking in submission to the Father. He just acted. He did something. And it cost him. Great sacrifice. Look at verse 7. Look what people did. They saw this, and the people began to mutter, the grumble. They said, He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. I mean, do you hear the disdain in their voice? It was costly to Jesus. He took a shot because he did what the Father wanted. Think about it for a moment. Jesus could have experienced a setback. Jesus had a movement going here. He was building a movement, and he had popularity going, and he had the crowds there. And, and you know, if I'm in, in his position, I'm starting to think very carefully about talking, you know, in ways where I don't offend people and trying to keep everyone on board and keep them all together. Jesus did what the Father wanted him to at great cost. 
He gained more enemies. <laughs> For some of us who hate conflict, that makes a pit grow in your stomach a little bit. Jesus wasn't afraid. It was costly. But look at the reward. Look at the changed life. Zacchaeus says, it's so cool. Zacchaeus says, listen, I, I've cheated people, so I'll pay him back. You know what the law said? The Old Testament law said if you cheated someone, if you got stuff from them inappropriately, he said, uh, the law said you had to pay him back four times. Zacchaeus said, I will obey the law. I'll give back four times. But then he says, and the rest of my stuff, I got, I'm giving half away to the poor because I see how Jesus is living and I want to live like him. In Philippians 2, at the name of Jesus, every knee, one of those knees was Zacchaeus. There was great reward. Great. How about you and me? Okay, so this is how Jesus lived. He lived with humility. He lived with submission. He lived with obedience. He lived with sacrifice. And as a result, there was reward. How about you and I? As we wrap up today, I want to talk a little quickly about how we live out those five things. The world needs a Savior. And the way the world gets to know a Savior is through Christ's followers who are sold out to living like Jesus. You see, living like Jesus isn't just reducing it to a set of rules where we, you know, are nice and don't swear and we don't drink and we vote the right way and we don't mix with the wrong people. That is not what it means to live like Jesus. This isn't just WWJD recycled. We must understand that following Jesus means living with humility. Do you think of yourself more highly than you ought to? Do I? Do I consider myself better than others? Uh, as a kid, I think you guys can relate to this. Um, Sunday night, after we would get home from church as a kid, uh, we would have popcorn night. And we would break out one of those glass bottles of Coca-Cola. Some of you remember the glass bottles. 16-ounce glass bottles, we'd pop the top off of it. And, uh, and then the rule was, because it was my brother and I, and of course, we had to split about, I mean, my parents were so mean to us. We had to actually split a bottle of pop. And so two glasses, right? And one would pour, and the other one would pick. So, you know, if I was pouring, oh man, it was a little, you know, I was going to get those things as perfectly dead even as possible because I did not want my brother getting more Coca-Cola than I got. I wanted the best. You guys, we, we just get growing up and we don't fight over Coca-Cola. We just fight over our other stuff. It's, we're, this, we're just all little kids. How do we live humbly? How about in your marriage? If you're married, have you ever been in an argument? I'm going to guess you have, okay? Uh, at least if you were in my marriage, you'd understand this. And, you know, sometimes you're, you're arguing with your spouse and you think, he just doesn't understand me. She just doesn't understand me. It always goes her way. It always goes his way. I never get, no, you know, we start doing the nevers and, you know, I always tell my kids nothing is ever, always or never. And, uh, and stop saying that. But we start doing this and we get in conflict and we think, Somebody just needs to listen to me. How about we live humbly in marriage? We say, you know what? If I'm never hurt again, okay, because I'm going to live humbly like Jesus. Whew. Sometimes we just think I need the recognition that I'm due. It's not marriage, it's everywhere. Go to work. 
How, when is Dave going to get the spotlight on him and everyone tell him how awesome he is? Humbly. It's not Jesus. Humbly is Jesus. Submission. How do we live like that? I mean, really? We have a daily choice. God's way or my way? Submission says God gets the glory from my life, not me. I mean, do you see how humility just works itself into submission? Submit is a dirty word in our culture. People have used it in wrong ways that are hurtful. Submit is a joyful choice to the Father. I'll know, I, know what, I have to know what he wants. One of our values, we have our four values up here on the walls. You can see them. Uh, we're bringing people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. And we, while we do these, we're motivated by these things. We're motivated by steadfast dependence on God. That's what submission is. It's a willingness to say, I will be driven by a desire to fully submit, to be dependent upon him. I have to know his word. I have to live by the word. I have to be completely dependent upon it. Okay, so some of you know that uh, I recently started drinking coffee. Like it was a Facebook saga if you follow me on Facebook. And, uh, and the reason after 39 and a half years of not drinking coffee, the reason I did it is because I, I realized I was drinking like 800 calories of Coca-Cola a day. And, uh, and that was just ridiculous. So I, I went and I started drinking coffee and I was like, I'm going to do it just with black coffee and nothing else so I can get my caffeine because I'm not interested in headaches. And you know what? Uh, for the caffeine... I found myself holding my nose and chugging this coffee down, right? And and the amazing thing about coffee is that you can taste it even with your nose plugged. It's uh, unbelievable. And, you know, I had like five or six days where I thought I was just going to retch all over. Like, it was just terrible. And all of a sudden, about day seven, I went, eh, I didn't want to throw up today. Interesting. (laughs) And by day 14, I grew, I woke up in the morning looking forward to it. I'm not kidding you. And all of a sudden, I was like totally dependent on my cup of coffee in the morning. It happened in like 14 days. It's unbelievable. Every morning I wake up and I think, I need my caffeine. Where's the coffee? Steadfast dependence on caffeine. How about steadfast dependence upon God? Do we wake up every morning and say, Holy Spirit, without you, I can't make it today. Do we wake up and say, I am determined to live like Christ because I'm utterly dependent upon God? Do we love this thing? Do we read this thing? Do we say, without this word, I can't function. I have to know how Jesus lived. You guys, life gets busy. I know. It's crazy. And all of a sudden we go, man, I haven't even cracked the word of God since like three weeks ago when I was in church. And this thing needs to be part of our daily sustenance. We need to study and know and love this because we're steadfast dependent on God. And then we need to be obedient. Oh, I'm running out of time. I'm sorry. Okay, I'm going to fly through this. Hang in here with me. Ed Dobson is the vice president of Cornerstone University. He made it his goal to be obedient to Jesus. So for an entire year, he was trying to figure out what would Jesus do. And so he figured, if I'm going to be obedient and live like Jesus, I'm going to just try to do it by the book for a year. I'm going to just try to live. So the first thing he realized that Jesus was a Jew, so I'm going to live like a Jew for a year. So he took it seriously. He wasn't supposed to trim his beard as a good Jew, so he let his beard go. The guy looks awesome. Uh, it's a great picture of him. He's got this huge beard. I couldn't pull that off. 
anyway, it, it was awesome. And so he's got this huge beard, and, uh, and he starts, you know, being serious about, like, it, not mixing cheese and, and chicken. Like, you're not supposed to do that in the Jewish law. So he threw out his chicken and cheese burrito, and he started getting serious about that. But then he, what, what I thought was fascinating is he started to say, who did Jesus spend his time with? So he started looking at scriptures and he found that Jesus spent his time with some people like Zacchaeus that a lot of people didn't like. In fact, people that made him uncomfortable. So he started to spend time with the poor, the forgottens, the left behinds. Started to live obedient. It completely changed his life. Who do you spend time with? Spend time with people who make you comfortable? So <laughs> we were talking about Faith in Action Sunday and putting those sticky notes. Someone said to me recently that uh, that's the worst thing we do is put sticky notes on doors because I made them so uncomfortable to invade someone else's personal space like that. I mean, I loved it. Sometimes Jesus makes us uncomfortable. Going to people is uncomfortable. It's all right. Do we live obediently? Do we live with sacrifice? Living like Jesus won't be cheap. There's going to be opposition. It will cost you something. In 1 Peter, I love one of the things that Peter says. He tells the early church that, you know what? As you live like Christ, people around you are going to think you're weird. In fact, uh, even just choosing to do what's right, they're going to think it's strange, Peter says, that you don't plunge with them in the same flood of dissipation. I, I like that imagery there. Plunging with them headlong into sin. They don't get it why you don't do that. And Peter says, and they heap abuse on you. Living like Jesus is costly. Some would tell you that if you just accept Jesus into your heart, everything will be fine and everything will be dandy and you'll have perfect relationships. And the gospel is costly. Living like Jesus has a cost, but it has a great reward. And don't miss that last thing. It's not cheap, but the reward's great. You and I walk into life excited about the rewards. We get to be part of this imagery of every knee bowing to Jesus, of every changed life. We bring people together by living like Jesus. And there is a life of great reward for those who embrace this lifestyle of Jesus. It starts, I think, by finding your Zacchaeus. Who is it the world rejects in your life? That's one piece of it. It starts with knowing how Jesus lived by loving this, by loving God's word to us, by knowing the kinds of, and then it starts by saying, Jesus, how does my life need to change? An honest self-evaluation, and then it moves to finding our Zacchaeus in our life. How can you be humble, submissive, obedient, sacrifice, and filled with great reward. Let's pray as we close. God, thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us. Thank you that you gave us an example of humility and submission, of obedience, of sacrifice. And thank you that you gave us a picture of the great reward of these things as we get to be involved in seeing the world changed for Jesus. God, I pray that each of us today would take this challenge seriously to know Christ more and to live 
like him. And God, when we ask, what would Jesus do? And we have no idea, let us love the word more. Let us be steadfast, dependent upon God. This brings us great joy. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.